On a dark and early May morning in 2016, a text message from a neighbor came to my cell phone at 5.15 a.m. What's going on at Hank's house? Why are police surrounding the house? Are you okay? But my cell phone was in the other room, so I just didn't get the message. Peaceful sleep sounds echoed from the children's rooms. Even the dogs were sleeping. My Bible was open with my notebook and coffee cup in arm's reach, and I started my devotions that morning as I have been doing for the past 20 years, and as Ken and Floyd Smith modeled for me, praying that the Lord would open my eyes to see wondrous things in his word. Well, I typically intersperse Bible reading with note-taking and prayer. And in the morning, I tend to pray in concentric circles. I start by confessing my sin, seeking deeper repentance, praying that the Lord would increase my love for him. I long for the Lord to grow me in holiness, to give me courage to proclaim Christ in word and deed as a living epistle, and to make me a more loving wife and mother and friend. I then pray for my family, the church, my neighbors, my nation, other nations, foreign missionaries, and missions. And I thank the Lord that he is risen. I thank the Lord for the covenant of which I am a part. And with notebook open, I pray through names and situations. Well, that morning, my prayer time stopped at the category of neighbor. I was praying for my immediate neighbor, Hank. A typical morning, except that the phone I had turned off and left in the other room continued to receive text messages, alerting me to the fact that something was terribly, terribly, dreadfully, and dangerously wrong in the house across the street, the house of the man for whom I was praying. Our house and Hank's house share a dead end that stops where two acres of woods open up. When Hank's moving van first backed down the driveway in 2014, he was a self-described recluse. He owned a 100-pound pit bull named Tank, who ran the streets without collar or tags. Every single neighbor I know, myself included, can remember the first moment we met this dog because, you know, your life just flashed before your eyes. You, you, uh, you thought this was it. That was it. Hank didn't cut his grass for three months, and by the time the city fined him for creating a meadow and an eyesore, not one regular mower could tackle the job. So truth be told, Hank was not the neighbor I prayed for when Edie sold the home and moved her family to Wisconsin. But we trusted that Hank was the neighbor that God had planned for us. Good neighboring is at the heart of the gospel we know. So when Hank moved in, we walked across the street, rang the doorbell, shared with him our contact information, introduced our children and our pets, and we waited for him to reciprocate. And it might just be coincidental, but it seemed like right after that, he dismantled his doorbell. <laughs> we prayed for Hank, and gossip started to spring up about the man who did not fit in here. 
And then one day, Tank ran away. And one day turned to one night, and nights turned to weeks. And many neighbors expressed relief that that, that that large, dangerous gray pit bull wasn't running the streets. But in the crisis of a lost dog, one who was also the closest companion of a lonely man, the very inkling of our friendship began. We offered to help find Tank, and Hank received our open hand. We posted Tank's information on Nextdoor, a social media app that organizes communication in our neighborhood of 300 homes. And we enlisted other dog-loving neighbors to come to Hank's, to Hank's aid for Tank's return. And one morning, my daughter, who was 10 at the time, just ran across the street and, like the evangelist that she is, told Mr. Hank about her prayers for Tank and about God's faithfulness, because it was just that clear. And when Tank was finally found safe and sound, we became fragile friends. Hank actually gave us his cell phone number, but asked us to please not abuse it. <laughs> we started to walk our dogs together. And actually, the first time I did this, we were, the kids and I were taking our afternoon walk, because every homeschooler needs an afternoon walk. And, um, and Hank was out work digging holes in his yard, and, and we said, hey, Mr. Hank, why don't you come walk Tank with us? And, and, and he said, well, nobody's ever asked me to walk dogs together. I don't even think I have a lead. Uh, let me go get a rope. And so he went and he got what looked like a clothesline, and he attached it <laughs> to his dog, and we walked together, and, you know, neighbors sort of gave the look, you know, the look. But definitely, our friendship started when we started walking dogs together, and eventually, we were eating meals together, um, spending holidays at our table, and sharing life. We learned that Hank was lonely, had severe clinical depression and post-traumatic stress disorder and anxiety. We learned that he had served time in the military, and even that he had lived as a homeless man before his mom bought him the house across the street. Hank loved the woods behind our houses as much as the children and I do. And as winter opened into spring, we each of our households would keep a tally of our nesting red-shouldered hawks, our calling American toads, our migrating and returning robins, blue jays, woodpeckers, towhees, and our ambling box turtles. Hank helped us chop down dead trees, always checking first to make sure that there were no babies in them. In his garage, he always had the knick-knack that one might need, a small flashlight to attach to a reflector vest for a night run, or a hook that you could attach dog bags to your leash. Hank was uneven. We presumed that his depression made him so. And sometimes he would stay secluded in his home for weeks on end. We'd text and we'd call, but to no avail. And the only sign of life was that his garbage can would appear at the curb at the regular time, at the regular place. And then Amy moved in about a month prior to this day. Twiggy, skinny. She wore the sunken eyes and the pocked skin and the manic unpredictability of a drug addict. I disliked her immediately, and I felt sinfully justified to do so. As neighbors were texting my inaccessible cell phone about commotion at Hank's house, 
I was praying for my neighbors. And that's when I noticed it. Burly men ducking around the back of my house wearing orange shirts with the letters D-E-A, Drug Enforcement Agency. Suddenly, serene morning darkness just exploded with the unnatural intrusion of police lights. And all I could, then I could see it. Yellow tape appeared everywhere. And it said, crime scene. I left my Bible open and I ran to get Kent. I grabbed my phone and I turned it on. Text messages bounced to life. What's going on at Hank's house? Is there really a meth lab across the street from you? Well, what does a conservative Bible-believing Christian family who lives across the street do in a crisis of this magnitude? How ought we to think about this? How ought we to live? Well, this is just a little spoiler alert. When events like this unfold in the early uh, dawn of the morning and it's a crisis, you will be very thankful if you are wearing modest pajamas. (laughs) All right, that's just... There won't be a whole lot of works righteousness in what I'm going to share in the next couple of days, but that's, that's just a good tip in general. Well, we could barrack ourselves in the house and remind ourselves and our children that evil company perverts. And like the good Pharisees that we are always poised to become, we could just thank God that we're not like those evil meth addicts across the street. We could envelop our home in our own version of crime scene tape, giving the message that we're just better than this, that we make good choices, and that we would never, ever fall into this kind of mess. We could surround ourselves with fear. I mean, what if the meth lab had exploded? They'd do that. And the room that was closest to the lab was my daughter's bedroom. What if my child had been hurt or killed? We could berate ourselves with criticism. How could we have allowed this unstable and dangerous man into our our hearts and our home and our family? But that, of course, is not what Jesus has called us to do. So as neighbors filed into our front yard, which had simply become front row seating for an unfolding drama of epic magnitude, I scrambled eggs, put on a big pot of coffee, set out the Bibles, and invited them all in. I mean, who else but a Bible-believing Christian family can make redemptive sense of tragedy? Who else can see hope in the promises of God when the real lived circumstances look so dire? Who else knows that the sin that will undo me is my own, even if my neighbor's sin has crime scene written all over it? And where else but a Christian home should neighbors go to in this kind of unprecedented crisis? Where is it safe to be vulnerable, lost, scared, helpless, even angry? You see, if we close the door and draw the shades, how can we teach our children to apply biblical faith to the hard facts of life, a process that cancels neither reality out as it begs Jesus for hope and help redemptive meaning, and saving grace. You see, if we were to lock the doors and numb ourselves with media intake and go into these remote monologues to our children about how we always knew he was a bad man or how we always make good choices, well, what legacy would that leave to our children? 
You see, here's the thing about self-delusion. The only person deluded is you. Well, I had other things on my list of things to do that day, but none more important than what I was doing, gathering in distraught neighbors, helping the children, mine and others, process this, and praying for my friends, Hank and Amy. And it was then that I realized it. I didn't even know Amy's last name. Well, neighbors were very quick to let the police know that Kent and Rosaria Butterfield were Hank's only known friends. <laughs> and uh, obviously, as you might imagine, that did not actually ingratiate us to anyone on that fateful morning. Well, we provided them with Hank's mom's phone number, and they wanted to know about anyone else who might be in the house other than Hank and Amy, who were very... Um, ingloriously dragged out of the house and doused with a hose and, and put in a car and taken off. And that's when we told them about Tank, the gentle giant of a pit bull. So just to let you know, the whole, the whole stereotype is sometimes true. Police officers hear very large pit bull and meth lab and they put it together and they don't think he's very gentle and nice. In fact, they made it clear to us that very large pit bulls who reside in homes that run meth labs um, are um, not usually larking around eating dog bones and sleeping on the sofa. We started to defend the dog, explaining that actually he would be a terrible guard dog. And then this was one of the many times that morning that I absolutely knew the Holy Spirit was in this. My husband, who is not an animal lover, said audibly in the presence of others, we will take the dog. <laughs> no kidding, he really said it. He can't take it back, he's here, you can grill him. He really said that. And this is an enormous dog. This is dog, it's, if I would straddle the dog and the dog would stand up, I'm airborne. <laughs> and it's a large enough dog that he's about the size of a small couch. So it's like living with a couch that, you know, on occasion moves. But, um, but, but Kent detoxed tank using a garden hose and dishwashing liquid. And this dog was shaken and terrified, but he showed his usual goodwill as he dried off in the sun in the embrace of all the children. And Kent just said, well, we will keep him safe until Hank is released. And with eyebrows raised, the police let us know that that dog would be dead three times over before Hank would see the sunshine again. And that's when we suddenly realized how very serious this is. All morning, our house was like a trauma center with uh, the DEA and other members of the police team using our kitchen and our bathroom and with neighbors coming in in a steady stream of concern, lament, and mostly criticism. And by one o'clock, the DEA told us that they were going to leave to open the meth lab. And that meant that they would open all of the windows and all of the doors and all of the noxious toxins that had been trapped in that home would be released into the air that we breathe. And because of the proximity of our home and Hank's, we were told to stay inside until 6 p.m. And so at that point, I thought, Wonderful, this fun party we're having with our neighbors will come to an end. Everyone will go home now. But no, only the nice people went home. 
Only the gracious people, the really angry people, stayed. Uh, Grief and sadness and betrayal mingled with the tangled feeling of entrapment. People were fuming. My favorite was Bill pacing my kitchen, like, like almost like a ping pong match, finishing off the last drop of coffee, uh, but then also saying to me, do you want to know the problem with you Christians? And I thought, well, no, I really don't, uh, if you'd like to know the truth. But, but he said, the problem with you Christians is you are so open-minded, it's like your brains are falling out your ears. I actually thought that was kind of a nice thing to say about Christians in a post-Christian world. But it does take a certain amount of, of, of gifting to have your neighbor both finish off your coffee and insult you in the same gulp. Sissy, a wholesome older woman, just held me and cried. More than one neighbor asked, did you know about the meth lab? I mean, really, people. And more than one neighbor accused, you must have known about the meth lab. Well, the jury was in, the neighbors hated Hank, and they weren't really sure they knew how they felt about us, given that we called Hank our friend. The press swarmed our neighborhood with relentless fixation. Ours was the largest drug bust in Durham, North Carolina for the year. And the press did what it does best, stirred up suspicion and unrest and left neighbors feeling exposed and raw and vulnerable. And by the day's end, when it was safe to open our windows and doors and when neighbors all trickled home, finally, we gathered our children and we prayed for Hank. And after we tucked the children and dogs in beds, for the first moment of the day, Kent and I could actually look each other in the eyes and could be alone and talk We were in shock. I mean, how could we have missed a meth lab across the street? Was Hank, quirky, depressed Hank, really some dangerous man? Kent looked at me and said, would you have done this any differently? I mean, befriending Hank? And I knew what he had meant because for the past two years, our neighbors had been suspicious about Hank. They just had a bad feeling about him, and they would tell us that. And we wondered, were they right and we wrong? I mean, it, it sure seemed so. But I said, no, no, Jesus dined with sinners, and so do we. Right, Kent said. But being known as a friend of sinners has an edge to it that I hadn't experienced before now, and that edge is sharp. And that edge was ours now, like it or not. And what is that edge? Well, it's simply this. When Christians throw their lot in with Jesus, you lose the right to protect your reputation. When you love the stranger, you will become strange. There is simply no way to love the stranger without losing some skin in the game. So we stayed up that night and we wrote two letters, one to Hank, reminding him of our friendship, our love, and of the promises of God. And the other was an open invitation to our neighbors, all of our neighbors, all 300 households, to come to our home for a cookout in three days. We posted this invitation on the Nextdoor app 
and it went out. Well, this might sound excessive, it might even sound lavish, but Kent and I do this regularly. And we have come to appreciate the power of extending wide open and inclusive invitations to strangers, people we have not yet met. And two things happen, probably more than two, but these are the two that, that I wanna talk about. Two things happen when you invite everyone in your neighborhood to an open gathering. First of all, 100% of your neighbors will feel loved, and they will let you know that. They will send you private messages that actually tell you what's going on in their life. You'll find out who has never been invited to anything since the divorce. You'll find out who is shut in and needs groceries. You'll find out who needs childcare or a trip to the doctor. You will actually learn how to pray for your neighbors without just saying, you know, and Lord, will you please be with Tilly and her broken, you know. You will find out how you can be also with your neighbors and be some earthly good. And that is very encouraging. And the second thing, and I think Kent really appreciates this because he, he's the one who thinks about numbers and things in our family. About 10% of your neighbors will show up when you invite 100% of them to come in three days. So it doesn't, it doesn't work that really everybody can come at once. And so this is what we wrote. Dear neighbors, this is what Kent wrote. Let's meet for a cookout at the Butterfields on this Lord's Day starting at 3 p.m. We have a lot to talk about. I'll cook burgers and hot dogs, and we will serve sweet iced tea. Please bring lawn chairs. Love in Christ, Kent. Well, at this point, we weren't sure how it was going to go because this was only three days since the meth lab was exposed and, and our neighbors were still pretty much fuming mad at us. So we did sort of think about why we were inviting a bunch of angry people to come and, uh, and be, be mad at us in our presence, but we felt like that was an important thing to do. And we were actually overwhelmed what happened when we came home from church that day. Well, when we pulled into the driveway after church, it appeared that the party had already started. I mean, people had already set up lawn chairs, tables were out with red checkered cloth, uh, you know, the, the, the ice was already poured out, um, and we didn't do any of this. Soon after we parked our car, I don't think we could even park it in the driveway because that was actually taken up with a party. So, you know, we did what the other neighbors did and parked down the street and walked to our house and let the dogs out and um, Kent started cooking burgers and soon other neighbors started to walk up. Um, and it was amazing. Familiar faces, open arms, bouquets of homegrown irises clustered in a little girl's apron. Sam's best home-baked beans in his hot, pat-holdered hands. And we embraced each other warmly. And after coolers of water and sweet iced tea were poured over ice, Kent brought the first tray of burgers and hot dogs hot off the grill to the red checkered tablecloth. And he gathered us in the front yard. The timing was perfect as voices had already started to rise in disagreement over the meaning of Hank's odd behavior and the discovery of the meth lab. And so standing in the middle of the driveway, Kent did something I've seen before. I don't think they ever teach this in any kind of homiletics class in seminary, but, but he's definitely perfected it. It's a combination of a sermon on loving your neighbors and a table blessing for the food. 
The sermon takes about seven minutes, the blessing about 30 seconds. Hank was our neighbor, Kent said, and Jesus calls us to love our neighbors, all of our neighbors, both the ones who are easy to love and the ones who are not. Kent described Hank as a mild-mannered recluse who helped us chop down trees. And Kent shared that Hank struggled with depression and had served time in the military. And Kent warned us of the destructive power of gossip and of failing to forgive each other. And he reminded us that addiction makes slaves of men. And he said that we were each capable of all kinds of sin. And then Kent let it be known that the same power that raised Jesus Christ, our Lord, from the grave is bestowed upon all those who repent and believe in him. Hank's story is not over, Kent said, and neither is yours. Jesus saves sinners just like us. After we ate, the kids ran off to play water gun fights. And I probably don't have to tell you, but crime scene tape is a wonderful prop if you're trying to play, you know, it, just, it, it gives you a certain dimension to the game that's, that's quite fun. And soon they were, they were jumping with hose-drenched clothes on the trampoline, making, making rainbows with every leap. And at about this time, angry voices interrupted this momentary peace, and Kent gathered us back to the driveway to talk. Some neighbors, Roth, as the King James would put it, challenged Kent on his sympathetic interpretation of Hank. And others worried aloud about property values. And as adults talked, the children flopped on the warm grass, holding rainbow push-up pops dripping down their arms. Tank stuck close to the children, both for comfort's sake and melting popsicle cleanup. And as the sun set, I brought out mugs of steaming coffee and people were still there. They were lingering long over these risky friendships that we were forging, of coming together in spite of strife and betrayal and grief and disagreement about who Hank was and who we are. We stood there, drinking coffee and picking at potato salad until it was too dark to see our forks. And neighbors embraced as they departed tentatively but genuinely, wiping, wiping runaway tears with the back of her hand, one neighbor told Kent that she had been a little girl in a Baptist church who once 30 years ago believed what Kent said about Jesus saving sinners just like us. She hadn't thought about it in three decades. And she wondered, was Jesus still waiting for her? Another neighbor said that the pastor of his church had talked that morning about the meth lab in Durham but hadn't put a personal face on it, either the personal face of Jesus or the personal face of Hank. Another woman said at work that, that rotting in prison for life would, would serve that evil man uh, the due uh, results of his actions. And our neighbor reminded this woman that Hank has Christian neighbors, and Christian neighbors hang on to prisoners. It was a procession of hope. It was a vision of promise. It was a drop of expectation that Jesus would make something good out of all of this for Hank and for the rest of us. Well, after the all-neighbor barbecue, the cleanup of a meth lab 
began to take place in real time, right before our eyes. And it seemed that as soon as neighbors had started to heal, something else happened that opened the wound. Well, since our front door faced his front door, we couldn't miss one gory detail. Meth is toxic, and anything in the house, including floorboards and walls, were removed and destroyed. Dumpsters filled the driveway, hauling away personal treasures from a life lost to us. And as the children in the neighborhood watched, they grieved. Children are not insensitive in the ways that adults are. They feel the acute pain of losing a drum set and a dog and your favorite sweatshirt and your baby pictures and all of the important stuff in your junk drawer. And we helplessly watched as the dumpsters filled and departed, filled and departed. And with each dumpster, the shame of getting caught was laid bare, that the wages of sin is death, is palpable horror when you watch your neighbor disappear one dumpster at a time. It took seven to erase him. The children kept count. Summer turned to fall and fall to winter, and still the house remained enveloped in yellow crime scene tape. And the betrayal and the grief in our neighborhood returned to its all-time high. And it was during this time that Kent and I started to practice something we call daily, ordinary, radical hospitality. Gathering our church family especially the singles or anybody going through a hard time, alongside of neighbors and kids in the neighborhood who have no place to go. At about 5.30, people would start to wander in. I'm a homeschool mom. At about 5.30, I'm sitting at usually the homeschool table screaming, like, you know, I've, someone's lost, I've lost my mind. Um, usually I'm, I'm, I'm do, helping, doing, well, helping is not the right word. I'm, I'm, I'm bullying a child in math at the table while I'm yelling at a child at the piano about those being eighth notes, not quarter notes. And usually at a, about this time, some of the single women from our church would wander over. And often there would be laundry on my dining room table that I hadn't folded yet. And you know, single women are wonderful with things like that because they know exactly what to do with laundry on the dining room table when you're expecting a house full of people. They shove it back in the dryer. <laughs> and they feel perfectly justified in doing so. Single women have the best boundaries around. So what we would do is simply this. We would share what we have, a simple meal. And then at the end of the meal, we would do what we always do. The children are old enough to bring the plates up to the kitchen sink and to send the coffee mugs down, and they would send the coffee mugs down with the Bibles and the Psalters. And, and often at this point, the, a neighbor will look at a cup of coffee and look at a Bible and look up at Kent and, and, and ask two very good questions. Well, one, first of all, what are we doing? Is this some strange ritual here? That's a good question. And then two follow-up questions. Um, um, the first one is, how long will it take? That's always a good question. And the other, when he hears that Kent is now going to read a chapter of the Bible, we're going to talk about it, and Kent's going to ask for prayer requests, and then we're all going to pray, our neighbors would say, well, do I have to pray too? Again, all good questions. Um, these were open invitations. 
and people started coming. Sometimes people would bring food, other times they would bring friends. And nightly, we gathered and we grieved and we opened the Bible and we prayed. And we did this for a long time because life is messy and often we just live in the messy middle. We live with the promises of God and we live in the reality that they're not here yet. And we must persevere in the messy middle. But I will tell you that why, the other reason why we do this is because Kent and I both are recipients of this. Hospitality was the foreground of my own conversion. When I learned I had Christian neighbors, I was a little terrified. This was 20-some years ago in the 90s in New York, where I lived as an out lesbian feminist and where I taught at Syracuse University, tenured in English and women's studies. My job was to create a program in queer theory, and I was one of the first crop of tenured radicals. After my tenure book was published, I wanted to write a book that was really on my heart, and specifically, I wanted to write a book about why people like you hated, or I perceived that you did, the person that I used to be. I could not understand why Christians would not leave consenting adults alone. And at this time, I wrote an article in uh, the local newspaper because a Christian men's movement had, had, had uh, bought space at the university and, had, and I felt it violated the university's um, civil rights policy and I, I wrote an angry editorial. And the New York newspaper gave the editorial this title, Promise Keeper's Message is a Danger to Democracy. Because in New York, if you really want to get people agitated, tell people that their freedoms will be taken away. Well, a young elder at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church put that article on the desk of an old pastor named Ken Smith. And he said, we need to shut this woman up. She's trouble. She's trouble. She's a gay rights activist. Um, she's an eloquent speaker. She gets a lot of people to listen to her and she co-authored the university's policy on domestic partnerships, which was the foreground to gay marriage. We need to shut her up. And Ken Smith looked up and said, oh, well, maybe Floyd and I should invite her to dinner. And you know what that young elder thought. That young elder thought, you know, it's time to retire. This is, you don't understand. This is a tiger by the tail. But Ken did invite me to dinner. And I accepted in part because as a gay rights activist, Hospitality was at the core of how the LGBTQ community became a community. There's absolutely nothing uh, experiential that connects the L and the G and the B and the T, except for a desire for political advancement and a deep fear of being destroyed and hurt by worldviews and ideologies that, that, that don't value um, the lives of LGBT, people who identify as LGBTQ. And so when Ken Smith wrote me that letter, my house had also been active in hospitality. It was, it was very common in New York for somebody's home to be open every night of the week in the gay community. 
so that everybody knew where to gather. Uh, we called ourselves family, and we meant it. And during those times, much would take place. Much political activism would take place. Much comfort would take place. Uh, much strategizing for the next thing. Um, these were vital things. And so when Ken and Floyd invited me to their home, I, I thought I had no idea Christians practiced hospitality. I, I was sort of intrigued. I wondered what they do in their home. Um, and I also, because I was writing this book on the religious right, I thought Ken Smith might be a you know, like an unpaid research assistant. I could, I could enlist him to help me understand what was going on. Well, the first time I walked through the door of Ken and Floyd Smith's home was, was like nothing else in my life. Um, first of all, they were extremely welcoming. They knew exactly who I was. They, there was no way that to, to pretend. We were, you know, I was a known person. He was a known person. Um, we knew that we were very different on things. Um, he, he welcomed me immediately, and I, was, I, was, I marveled at how similar, in some ways, our houses were. Um, Floyd would serve a very simple meal, and that simple meal could easily be stretched for the more people that would walk through the door. And walk through the door, they did. But a big difference between the kind of liberal communitarianism at my house and the biblical hospitality at Ken Smith's house was that at a certain point in the day, in the evening, Ken would just stop the discussion and say, okay, well, we're just not going to agree on this, but it is time to go to the Word of God. And he would open the Bible and read a chapter and sing a psalm, and then we would take prayer requests. And I marveled at this because two things were happening. One, I was deeply offended by the words I was hearing in the Bible and the words I was hearing in the Psalms. I was just, I, they, they floored me and they, they offended me and I will tell you they disgusted me. And at the same time, I was really drawn in to what it meant that Ken and Floyd Smith had this system of stopping the anxiety because at a certain point, they just stopped and they prayed. And I thought, wouldn't my life be different if I could just believe these things? Wouldn't it be amazing to be able to stop with the anxiety and, and, and pray and go on and actually leave this feeling like you were not being irresponsible? And so I kept reading the Bible and I kept going to Ken and Floyd's house. And when I say this happened for a long time, I mean I had hundreds of meals at Ken and Floyd Smith's house, and I had read the Bible about seven times through, and I was still arguing with him. And then one night at, our, at my house, my transgendered friend Jill cornered me in the kitchen. And Jill put her large hand over mine and said, Rosaria, this Bible reading is changing you, and I don't know what to do, but it's scaring me. And I need you, before you go back in that room and talk to other people, I need you to tell me what is going on with you because this is not just a research project. And I exhaled deeply and I said, no, Jill, I don't think it is a research project anymore. I mean, I have a question for you. What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? What if we are all in trouble? And Jill looked at me and said, Rosaria, I had been a Presbyterian minister for 15 years, and I prayed that the Lord would heal me, but he didn't. If you would like, I will pray for you. 
And now you know what gay rights activists talk about in the kitchen. In case you didn't, you maybe wanted to know. And I mean that sincerely, because God has put eternity on the hearts of all people. Well, I didn't want, I didn't think I needed healing. I didn't have a sinus infection. I didn't have plantar fasciitis. I thought gay was good. I, I hated that, you know, the victim rhetoric of healing. Um, but I also didn't like what the Bible said about my homosexuality. I, I didn't want to repent of my sin either. Um, and so I just rejected both the repentance model and the healing model. And, and the next day I came home from work and I found two large milk crates spilling over with books. And these were Jill's books from seminary. And Jill was giving them to me. And um, I'm, you know, addicted to books. And so I, I started to pick up these books and I found something even greater than, I, than, the, than what I thought were the words on the page. And that's that Jill was a a book writer, you know, there, there are some people who write in the margins of their books, and if it's your book and it's not a library book, that's legit, you can do it. Um, but Jill had narrated her, some of her journey and some of her struggles in the pages of, this, of these books, and one in particular was um, Calvin's exposition on the Book of Romans. And in Jill's handwriting in big block letters, it said, watch out. And so I sat down, and I opened my Bible, and I read this in the book of Romans. And I want you to know, I had read the Bible seven times through at this point, but there are certain things I just skipped a lot, certain things I didn't like to think about. This was one of them. But with Jill's handwriting as my guide, I read this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. And for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with the passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Well, I had spent a lot of time thinking about homosexuality. I had spent a lot of time thinking about my homosexuality. And this, this passage just enraged me. It didn't tell me that sexual orientation was a category of personhood. It didn't tell me that this is just who a certain percentage of the population will be. It didn't say any of these things. And yet there was something in that last line that I couldn't shake. And that last line that I read to you told me clearly that if you cannot receive a blessing from God, you will demand it from men. I was not converted, but this was the first time in my life that the Bible started to read me. And all of a sudden, I realized there was something about this text that I had to reckon with that I hadn't. Now, I am going to give a seminar on this topic, so I'm not going to, be, to, be, to belabor it anymore, but I want to leave you with just a couple of thoughts as you are 
loving your neighbors. Number one, it takes a lot of time and money, and sometimes all you get is arguments. Sometimes all you get is me uh, coming up with, you know, probably very disrespectful, very God-dishonoring arguments at your dinner table, wanting answers. And sometimes you get people like my neighbor Hank, who brought danger into our neighborhood. So when you love your neighbor, you get people like me, and we're not easy to deal with. But there was something about watching Ken and Floyd Smith coming, uh, I did eventually come to faith in the privacy of their living room. And part of how that happened is those hundreds of meals. And during those hundreds of meals, Ken and Floyd Smith were tender with me. They respected my privacy. Uh, they did not take pictures of, of, of you know, the food we were eating and post it on social media. And they did not try to gain some kind of glory with their evangelical friends because they had this, this, this dangerous heathen at their table. Not at all. Um, as much as I tried to say to them, no, you don't understand, gay is who I am, they would very patiently say, no, no, gay is not who you are. Gay may be how you feel, but you are an image bearer of a holy God, born male or female, with a, with a, with a soul that will last forever and a body that will also go somewhere. They were patient in helping me to see that being born male or female comes with ethical and moral responsibilities and constraints. They modeled for me that the cross revealed that Christ's absolution is infinite and that his association with his people eternal. They were very clear that the cross is an instrument of execution and that all sin, including the thumbprint of Adam, which is what I had come to understand, I was beginning to think my homosexuality might be, that even that had to be under the blood of Christ. Now, I will say more later about how all of these things happened, but the gospel is there for you when things remain thick it's there for you. Jesus is there for you when it doesn't look like there's progress. The Lord Jesus Christ is leading Northern Ireland from the head of the pack right now as you, the church, are following him. He knows about the vote coming up in October. He understands the concerns you have for your children. And Satan would love for you to retreat Satan would love for you to just give up on your neighbors and give up on people like me. But God's elect people are everywhere. They are everywhere. And God has put them in proximity to you. God never gets the address wrong. And so I will end where we began with the command that we are to love our neighbors because a blessing of a hundredfold is promised to them through you. And that hundredfold blessing is not going to fall from the sky. It will come from you and from me and from the church, from our homes, 
or it will not come at all. Peter said to Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. People of God, the neighbors that you love and that you are witnessing to and that you are praying for have much to lose. In order for me to stand before you today, I've had to betray everyone that I loved from 20 years ago. Not one person could remain untouched by that. And it was powerful to step into a church that was a family and that had a place even for me at the table. So let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed leading us and that we do not need to look at this world in distress and in anxiety and in fear, but instead, oh God, we could look to the risen Christ who, because of the power of the resurrection, truly does give to us what we need to love our neighbor. God, help us to not love our idols, but to kill our idols. And help us, O oh God, to see the image of God in each of the people that we will behold. Lord, we love you, and yet we know that we don't, we don't love you enough. So change our hearts, God. Help us to love you more. It's in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus that I pray. And all God's people said, amen.